That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. So, Tom, we were at the Battle of Ideas on Saturday, just for the day. You, you didn't, you weren't able to go back either way because I couldn't make the Sunday. So I went just back there. on Sunday. Oh, I you had did a great second day, Ben. Um, we we crossed paths on the Saturday, and uh, and I thought Sunday would be quieter than Saturday. I thought, oh, I'll go on a Sunday as well. Yeah, it might not be quite so busy at coffee breaks and moving between rooms but i can assure you it was just as busy <laughs> just as what? driving in the I corridors saw as fox, well as in the uh, baroness baroness fox i say uh was saying that ticket sales have been the best ever this year so it did feel pretty round at church house didn't it um and uh, like we were saying before it's, you know so many things to go to um so top marks to academy of ideas and the organizers and so on i mean it's just a brilliant event every year i think it's the third one i've been to um, and I'm not anywhere near bored of it. Um, no. No. Yeah, it's, it's my first. Fun. And you enjoyed it. And I, I, I kept on, you, you know how you see people across the room, uh, and yet by the time I got to them, they'd, they'd, they'd gone. I don't know whether they were running away from me. That's always a possibility. <laughs> uh, but also you see familiar faces or slightly familiar faces, and you think, hang on, do I know you off the TV? Or have we met? Have we had a drink? Have we? Yeah, so it's... Uh, it's 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 fantastic, but um, an embarrassment of riches, I think, Ben, is exactly the right description. I mean, what 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 struck you uh, in your in your during your day at Battle of Ideas? What things jumped out at you? Well, the sessions are, of course, the main event, and the topics ranged from uh, literary adaptations to surrogacy to artificial intelligence to regulating the internet and everything in between. I was watching a really interesting session on the heckler's veto, uh, which th th there were only, <laughs> only a couple of heckles, uh, obviously, uh, inevitably, during uh, during the course of that. But that's very interesting. Um, but, you know, the thing I actually enjoy most at Battle of Ideas is speaking to people between sessions. And we were at the Free Speech Union stand um, and it's just having those conversations with people who come along. And lots of people are already members of ours, which is great. Um, and we see people with FSU badges and things. So it's really nice to speak to some of our members. It's obviously a great opportunity to sign up new members. And we did very well on that score. So welcome if you're listening uh, for the very first time. Um, we spoke to some listeners of the podcast as well. So hello, it was great to speak to you. Um, and I think we've got some material that we'll be, uh, we'll be working into future episodes based on some of the conversations we had. Um, I really enjoy that bit. And of course, it's a great opportunity as well just to, uh, you know, to see, see and speak to some of the big names in the culture war and the free speech battles that are going on um, and people who've won some, some famous celebrated uh, cases. So the whole thing is great, but I, I enjoy that bit, that aspect of it personally. Mm. I have to say, I, I also agree with that, but I thought the sessions themselves, when you actually went into a room and listened to a panel or, or a discussion, uh, I thought the sessions themselves were were just um, 
I was, you know, I was. It was like being at a concert at times, where you lean forward into the music, or you lean forward into whatever the orchestra is serving up, uh, with a panel of that quality. Um, particularly, I was lucky enough to, to 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 see a few sessions with my my new hero is Frank Ferredi, I think, the Hungarian philosopher, um, and uh, he's he was in a, several sessions, and you you think, my goodness me he's here and, and, and there are a whole bunch of other people just as um, interesting to listen to in equivalent rooms. And the other thing I found was that uh, sometimes the, the comments from the floor were just as perspicacious as the comments from the various panels. I mean, the example that struck me was I went to a session on lived experience, which, of course, probably sends a shudder up your your up your back as it does mine um this sort of weaponized version of experience used essentially to shut people down and it was a fantastic panel that we had and it was um alka sagal cuthbert who was chairing the session very well uh there was a comment from the floor uh though because which really resonated with me um and it was someone who mentioned great art uh, and he said, what was the quote? He said, great art teaches us more about ourselves and teaches us more about our lived experience than our lived experience. And I thought, what an amazing comment. It, it was almost throwaway. But it, to me, unwrapped so much of the fallacy around lived experience. Because it's true, art and culture at its best, going through... Um, reading a even just reading a book when you you hear an author right or you read an author who says something that you thought you were the only person who thought that or felt that or was in that situation but it's it's written down it reflects you back and it also explains you better than you explain yourself so then to have this idea of lived experience being um, the king as it were top of the pile with regard to judgment of a situation or determination of what we do in a situation is ridiculous. It shows an, an utter lack of understanding of what great art and great culture can do. And, and that was just one little throwaway phrase, and I'm sure the person who said it um, didn't expect it to get so picked up because it was not from the panel, it was from the audience. But uh, that, that really struck me. And that wasn't the only instance of it, Ben. It's funny, it's funny you should mention that. I'm rereading Pride and Prejudice, one of my absolute favourite novels. And I, I have so many occasions reading that where I think, oh my God, such and such is just like Mr. Bingley, or that's exactly what Mr. Collins would say in this city. You know, I, I, and to have those kind of social observations 200 years after, or more than 200 years after they were written, um, still ringing true. I'm doing a debate in Exeter on... Um, I think this house regrets the rise of woke culture or something like that uh, in November at some point in a few weeks. Um, and I think one of the arguments or perhaps the argument I'll be making is that actually there isn't really a woke culture uh, because it, it's all about restricting creative output through lived experience and all the rest of it. Um, and in fact, that suffocating of, of culture and cultural expression is the thing that's perhaps most to be lamented. Um, and I was at the Freedom Association conference on Tuesday. I, I'll go you spoke on. at it. I spoke at it. Um, but before I spoke, I was listening to uh, Mark Francois, MP, and he's written this self-published book 
about the Brexit Spartans and the uh, struggle of the sort of uh, hardcore ultra Brexit wing of the Conservative Party to uh, fight back against Theresa May's deal and all, all that kind of uh, all that kind of story that we were all following so closely at the time. Um, so, whatever your view about about Brexit and so on. That's a story, obviously, that deserves to be told. It's a piece of political history that is crucial to understanding Britain over the next 50 years. Um, and he was just talking about the fact that he could not find a publisher. So he found a literary agent, uh, I think two, he said, um, who were interested at various points. And they said, yep, the manuscript's good. He had friends who were eminently qualified to judge it, who read the manuscript and said, yep, you've got a, you've got a sellable product here. This is, this is brilliant. Um, th- th- this really does deserve to be published. You need to make these edits, but basically the product is sound. Um, got a literary agent and then couldn't find a publisher for it. The agent just couldn't find a publisher because he was on the wrong side of the Brexit debate and the publishing industry mm. being what it is. Um, he, he just couldn't find anyone who was interested in it. So... That is an example. That's obviously not a sort of creative cultural expression, but but that is an example, I think, of what of what is going on in publishing and the difficulty of trying to get a novel published if you don't have the right protected characteristics or if you're on the wrong side of a political debate. I certainly felt that a theme that came up over the weekend, and far be it from me to try and draw strands together, having seen my snapshot of the weekend, um, but a theme that came up, and it was actually one of the big plenary sessions on Sunday, yesterday morning, was whether the culture wars are a distraction, you know, that accusation that comes at us that says, actually, stop being distracted by the culture wars. Um, they're either made up, which your anecdote about publishing makes crystal clear is not true, as does our data that we've spoken about before, makes crystal clear that it's not true, it's not made up. Or, okay, it's not made up, but you're getting distracted from important issues. You're getting distracted from the things the country Um, really needs to progress. And there was a lot of discussion about culture versus the economy as well on Saturday in a similar situation. But just focusing on that question as to whether the culture wars are a distraction. Again, I'm going to go back to Frank Ferreira, who, uh, and I apologise to him if I pronounce his name wrong, but um, he was saying that it's not a distraction. It can't be a distraction because what this new woke uh, movement is doing is it's, it's robbing people of their past and it's using language to rob people of their past but the trouble is that language it's an integral part of our culture and controlling it robs us of our culture and it creates the phrase he used was it creates a social amnesia and so you have people who forget what our culture is and the creates creates a vacuum it creates um, a vacuum into which gets poured all the untruths that the woke want us to believe, the rewriting of history, the rewriting of why things are the way they are today. And, um, you know, just linking in with another session we had with Peter Hitchens was saying, he was talking about grammar schools, he's just written a book on the great betrayal and the fact that we've lost our grammar schools. And thinking about it linked with this amnesia idea because someone stood up in the question time and said, I'd never heard of grammar schools. I didn't know what they were. And he said to Peter Hitchens, said, I apologize. I apologize for, for not knowing what grammar school. And he said, no, please don't apologize. Please don't apologize because what you're seeing and what you're experiencing there is a real thing that this is not being written up. This has already been forgotten history. 
And again, his wonderful description of what we did when we, we got rid of the grammar schools, and of course that, you know, it's a debatable topic. He says that, uh, in effect, we cut down an ancient tree, a bit like that sycamore gap tree near Hadrian's Wall. We've cut down an ancient tree by, by sort of sweeping, the way, sweeping them away. We've cut it down. It won't grow back, and then it will be forgotten. The history is sort of, there's a thin topsoil that's been put over it as well and it's got forgotten and so going back to what frank ferrani was saying that's a perfect little example of social amnesia which means this cannot be a distraction this is fundamental to who we are and it's fundamental to how we think about ourselves um so that that i felt was a bit of a theme is really we can take confidence in in not worrying about people who accuse us of being distracted we're not distracted this matters I think I agree with you, but I do have a certain um, contrariety of feeling about about this question because it, it seems to me a little bit like, uh, and I've not used uh, ancient Roman or uh, late antique <laughs> metaphor for, I think, three episodes, so I've been saving one up. Um, but it, it reminds me a bit of um, iconoclasm and Eastern Romans running around smashing up images, graven images of saints and so on in churches. Now, the Byzantine or Roman Empire had much bigger problems in the seven and eight hundreds AD than images of Jesus or images of saints that various religious fanatics objected to. And yet a huge amount of energy is invested in destroying these things. So on the one hand, yes, of course, that's a distraction from the massive, massive economic and military problems that the empire has. Um, but on the other hand, that cultural churn and those decades of chaos uh, and so on, do then have a huge legacy in shaping what Eastern Christianity looks like. So just as you might say in a thousand years, looking back on this period of history, you know, why on earth was so much energy invested in who who could use which public bathrooms and, and that kind of thing, which I, I think actually is a very important issue, by the way, so I don't want to sound dismissive of it. Um, you know, when you've got the rise of China and you've got uh, Islamist extremism and you've got economic problems and all the rest of it, um, so you, you could make a cogent argument that all of these things are distractions, but also I think the outcome of the cultural debate that we're still very much in the middle of will have a an effect rippling through the next decades, and it is really important that the uh, small L liberal side of those debates wins. Um, most preeminent now minds freedom of speech and freedom of expression. I think it becomes a question of confidence, Ben. I, I think that um, why I firmly believe it, it isn't a distraction is because of the, the outcome of this, this culture war and the accusations that are incoming is to undermine the confidence people have in who they are, their identity, their cultural identity, uh, and their confidence in holding a position uh, and to my mind, a society needs to have confidence in itself if it is going to stand up to a China threat or the, whatever the next threat is, AI keeps popping up as, as being the next huge opportunity while also being the next uh, huge threat as, as huge revolutions normally are, both, aren't they? They're, they're, they're not one or the other. And I feel we're walking into the next wave of change with no confidence, no confidence in ourselves as a society. And much of that, by no means all, is, is put at the feet of um, the, the, the effectiveness of 
the culture wars to undermine our confidence. And I felt that came up um, with another question that was addressed at the Battle of Ideas, which is, you know, how has all of this happened under a Tory leadership, a Tory government? And we, we've talked about this from various perspectives. And one of the answers that I heard over the weekend is because our leaders, um, and that would, of course, be uh, our Tory government, our ministers, they've lost confidence. They've, they don't actually have confidence in who we are as a society, in what our priorities are as a society. And if you lose confidence, then you're swayed easily. You're moved, and you are tempted to roll over when the woke come in and, and try and restrict language and try and censor, because you no longer have the confidence and the conviction that uh, the prior generation of uh, Tory ministers in the 80s and the 90s, those who seem like giants now when we look back at them, uh, even though Spitting Image did a fantastic job of tearing them apart, and even though Yes Minister and Yes, yes Prime Minister did a fantastic job of tearing them apart, they now do seem like giants, barring a few notable exceptions. Um, where's the confidence? Um, so that would be my other perspective on that. I think that explains the first 10 years of Conservative government and, of course, the fact that half of that was in coalition. Um, but I think in more recent years, certainly in the last couple of years, um, I, I think, you know, particularly in you know, Home Secretary is one good example, um, there are ministers who are authentically Conservative. Um, it just seems that, as we've talked about, previously um the minister as an abstract figure is very powerless and and it seems that ministers no longer have if they ever did a grip on the levers of power and actually rory stewart uh i've not read his book but there was a, an extract of it circulating on twitter a couple of weeks ago in which he was describing the immense struggle he had as a minister in the foreign office trying to stop taxpayer funding going to a group in syria that was aligned with jihadists and it took him months to get to the point where he could identify the person or the committee or the body who had made the decision to pump this money towards this group. Um, and, and there was no there was no accountability. He, he, he sort of went on this hopeless journey to try and find and identify the culprit and never could. And it, it was just lost in a sort of Whitehall morass, um, you know, to try and stop money going to jihadists. And so I think that for me, crystallised the fact that, as we've talked about, ministers, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, um, the, the the synapses between the minister and then what, what the sort of body of the government and the state actually does, just there seems to be completely uh, disentangled. There's no link there. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to be working. So, I mean, that's, a, that's obviously a huge philosophical problem. But, but part of the... It means the feedback loop of democracy isn't working. Um, but I think lots of the ground for this is laid, of course, by the fact that the New Labour quangocracy has continued basically unimpeded for most of those 13 years um, of Conservative government, with some exceptions, I, I would say, at the Charity Commission and so on. But um, yeah, that, that does seem to be the case. Well, similar, a similar idea came up, and this was actually in our Free Speech Union online censorship session on Saturday, which I think we were both, were, were both in. Um, one of the panel members, I can't remember which one, said that uh, recently uh, his tweet thread, I don't know if that's the right phraseology, his tweet thread or his Twitter thread, 
had been uh, throttled or shadow banned. And he'd raised the question and said um, to Twitter, or X now as it is, um, why, why is my Twitter thread being throttled? And I can't, it may well have been pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. I can't remember which way around it was. Nevertheless, it got throttled. And the answer came back. The trouble is that the code, the Twitter code, is so Byzantine, uh, it's so complicated, it's so deep, that we, even as the people who want to give you your free speech, also try to pull the lever, and this buried code uh, is still... uh, shadow banning you or, or throttling your your thread so it's not just levers of power in in parliament uh, across parliament square it's um even people who are trying to change a, a tech company to reflect a, a new management and a new policy it's it it's proving difficult even to do that and i thought that was quite interesting that um the code becomes so complicated they can't do it so there is a digital deep state in Twitter. There's a digital. I would not be surprised if there if there, if there were such a thing. Ben, we used to have deep throat at the times of the X Files in uh, in the 1990s. I, I imagine that's probably gone online now. There is a, there is a, an electronic deep throat somewhere. There's one other thing I just talk about, and uh, this is because I've basically been stuck on a loop saying the same mm. thing at every public appearance or TV thing I've done in the last week which is talking about some of the data we spoke about last week, Tom, that you've put together. So our 2,250 cases in three years are 73% success rate where we know what the outcome is um, and the fact that we get on average about 12 new requests for help each week. And we've had three over the weekend, which I'll be replying very shortly. Um, So I made that case at the Freedom Association conference. They did a conference on council culture which was a bit like Battle of Ideas, absolutely packed with fantastic speakers. Uh, and it was a day-long conference, and so they were they were quite short sessions of half an hour or so. Um, and then the schedule sort of disrupted by Jacob Rees-Mogg making a, an impromptu appearance. Um, and uh, David Starkey was there, Nigel Farage, Matt Goodwin, Eric Kaufman, and so on. Uh, so it was really good. But it was quite nice to be able to go in towards the end of the day, and lots of the discussion of these things tends to be philosophical and abstract and of course there's a place for asking how we got into this mess and how do we get out of it but it was quite nice just being able to approach it from a more practical perspective and say well there is a problem here's the evidence actually the problem is more widespread than people perceive but the good news is that we are being successful and that 73 percent success rate where we know the outcome uh, I think is something that people found quite heartening. So uh, I, I spoke to Andrew Doyle about this as well on a, a little sort of Vox Pop segment uh, on Free Speech Nation that went out on Sunday, just gone. Um, so I think that's quite that's quite heartening. It's a sort of good news, bad news situation. Well, bad news, good news. Um, but I think the good news is quite good. I certainly think um, that's where things start to come together, isn't it? When certain accusations about there not being a problem, we can push back, as you, I think you described it originally, um, Ben, as the um, most complete set of data we have on can- cancel culture. Mm. And I would just say that that was something that also struck me over the weekend, was the uh, we're moving now to the stage of wanting real practical answers for different groups as to how they deal with their free speech problems. I was also at the LGB Alliance conference on Friday. So it was a sort of three-day conference weekend. And one of the sessions there was given by an ex-chief executive of the NHS 
who made it crystal clear that all the NHS chief executives are fully aware of the issues around uh, these transgender policies that are being rolled out. They know the problems. They know the gender critical um, side of that argument is now protected by um, uh, following the Maya Forstarter case. They're just not doing anything about it or they're not under sufficient pressure. Or maybe they don't even know what to do about it, how to push back. And she actually gave us a set of questions or gave people who are in the NHS a set of questions that they can ask their leadership, very practical questions, um, to challenge any policies that are going out. For example, she, well, in essence, they were questions around the public sector equality duty, which all NHS trusts have to be run uh, according to. Well, a couple of those questions, um, what mechanisms do you have in place to comply with the public sector equality duty? Where do staff networks report in the governance structure? How do you balance the output from your staff groups? If you've conflated the LGB and the T, how do you avoid one protected characteristic dominating another protected characteristic? These are all very reasonable challenges, practical questions that people can ask. Now, it obviously puts your head above the parapet to ask them, but they can be that you can find different ways, I suppose, of tabling them with the chief executive. But I felt that was a really good practical piece of advice from someone who had been an NHS leader on how to move this to the next stage, to the next level. Um, so you know, we're doing our bit at the Free Speech Union. We're, we're, we're trying to get the data out there and, and make people confident uh, because we have the data. And at the same time, you've got people who are coming up with some really good, uh, meaningful, practical steps they can take to challenge policies and potentially change them. Well, that's great. I mean, we spend a lot of time at the FSU, particularly in the case of legal teams, combing through NHS policies. You know, an NHS Foundation Trust has a new policy on inclusion or trans or whatever. Um, and uh, I did make this point, actually, in the Freedom Association conference that I've spent more of my life than perhaps I would have wished reading NHS HR documents. Uh, I, but some of them are absolutely shocking. And you kind of think, well, this must be the worst one they're going to write post Forsyth. You know, surely it can't get worse than that. And then inevitably, a few months later, there'll be something even worse. Um, so it's good to have a senior figure, former figure within the, the NHS, speaking candidly and uh, offering those kind of pointers. That's that's quite heartening. Well, Tom, do you want to move on? Should we talk about this research that our colleague Carrie Clark has done on libraries, um, which is a theme we spoke about at length with Sybil Ruth over the summer, um, and particularly about the soft censorship, I think you could probably say, of gender-critical books published by female authors. Um, and so we've we've done this piece of research into this because we had lots of people in the, the literary world contacting us. We have a writer's advisory council, so literary agents, uh, authors of fiction and non-fiction, librarians, all saying, look, there's a problem here. And rather than just deal with it on a sort of case-by-case -case basis as these stories popped up or as we were contacted, we really wanted to get a comprehensive overview of what was going on in libraries. Um, and so now we've, we've carried out this survey of 49 major local authorities looking at their library catalogues and comparing which books they stock. Uh, so we, we've taken a list of uh, popular, in inverted commas, uh, books by trans rights activists 
and titles, comparable titles, on the other side of the debate and basically stacked up uh, which books are most in demand, which books are most oversupplied. And uh, this is becoming something of a catchphrase for me, but I bet you can guess what happened next and what we found. <laughs> yeah, and it was quite striking. I, I, Carrie pulled me into the analysis as she was pulling. So she's done a lot of... It's well worth reading the report in full, and we will put a... Um, We'll put a, a link to the full report in the show notes as well because there's a lot of qualitative points that she's made. But as regards the quantitative points, we looked at these five gender-critical books and these five trans rights books, and we compared two things. How much uh, of the, what, how many of those books were being stocked by the 49 libraries? A very difficult one to kind of measure because the absolute number of books in itself may not be meaningful. It might be a library covering a very rural area with not a huge population versus a central London library where where it's got a much more much denser sort of population uh, spread in that borough. Uh, and uh, so what we did was with do a little bit of an internal comparison. We counted up the number of libraries who were publishing or sorry stocking more transgender rights books than gender critical books, less, and equal numbers, and we just totted them up. The result was extraordinary. More than two-thirds of those 49 libraries uh, were stocking more trans rights books. And I tried to, this is me getting a bit, so I got quite, I got quite involved into the, in this when I saw that. I thought, well, is that, if this was random, if, if, if these libraries were stocking on a 50-50 disinterested basis, how likely would that be? And I put a number of models, it's, for those who are mathematicians, it's simple binomial distribution that you overlay to this. Um, the probability of what we saw happening, if it was random, was I couldn't get it more than 5%, so 1 in 20. What does that mean? This is a real effect, is what this means. It means that the, this is a real overstocking of trans rights books over gender critical books and I couldn't really mathematically find a way that that would make this relatively likely as an outcome it didn't seem to be a, a likely outcome if they were being even-handed but worse than that then not only were they overstocking the trans rights books but also the trans rights books were not being borrowed at the same rate as the, so in fact this wasn't about meeting demand which would be the only reasonable reason for doing this and again, it's just a snapshot, but the rate at which the transgender books were being um, loaned out was half the rate at which the gender-critical books... So gender-critical books were out at about 40% loan rate, and the um, uh, transgender were only at 20%. And if you took out the most popular transgender book, that loan rate for the transgender right, rights books went down to under 10%. A real difference in terms of popularity from the public um, uh, between the two types of book. And the last point I'd make then is that in London it was crazy. We had 15 London boroughs in the data, 15 of the 49, which is which is appropriate given again the sort of demographic density in the London area, and only 14 or or sorry. 14 of those 15 stocked more transgender books than they did gender critical. Uh, so the, the, the trend was really emphasised in, in London. We talk about the, the metropolitan elite. Well, there's, a, there's an example of that, I think, uh, in, in our data. Whenever I was in a... When I still worked 
in higher education whenever as in a university or college library there'd always be a, a featured table for you know best books come out in the last few months or whatever and invariably it was a secular shrine to r- race white fragility or to trans and all of the types of books that, that we've been uh, capturing in this survey invariably it was that and so I think this is one of those cases where a piece of research is needed and in a way it confirms what what we already knew from day-to-day experience of using libraries or being in university libraries. Um, But it does so in a completely rigorous, scientific, empirical way. So as you said, Tom, I I would encourage you to read the report in full. Um, We'll go and look at the summary of it and it was reported in the Telegraph and I think the Sunday Times as well over the weekend. Um, so it's good that it has some press coverage because this is a real problem and it mirrors the problem of course that uh, people have found in Waterstones and other bookshops where you know, it might be that the book is on sale technically but actually finding it uh, because it's been hidden in the back of the stockroom or made as obscure as possible um, and then even if you do succeed in, in finding a copy you will have to endure the opprobrium of the shop assistant when you're purchasing a copy of it um, so it's troubling, of course, that it's going on, but it, it, it's it's very useful to have this research to point to. And I think this will be a useful tool when people are writing to their library service or trying to get more gender critical books stocked to say, well, look, here's the evidence that there's a problem. This isn't just me whinging at you. Um, this is a well demonstrated, well evidenced issue. So I think it will be quite a useful study for that purpose as well. And uh, it's a really important moment in the story of this, of, of, of how libraries are displaying books, stocking books, uh, because the Chartered Institute of uh, Librarians and Information Professionals, SILIP, are in the process of uh, reissuing guidance on how to deal with these this issue of, of socially contentious books. And there was, I think, their original statement on this back in two thousand policy in two thousand five was very strong. You, you know, you shall publish books of all kinds, come what may, um, barring legal restrictions, uh, without fear or favour. And the draft guidance is worrying because it does seem, and it's just covered in Carrie's report. It does seem to have um, fallen foul of this trap of allowing current social trends, EDI, equity, diversity priorities, um, to push down the priorities around free speech uh, without kind of twigging that EDI is itself very partisan, very one-sided, and um, is is in that regard, the opposite of, of free expression and, and free speech, where all, all books are treated equally. So it is a key moment. The timing is is really important. And that we've had the Calderdale example. Calderdale Library, I think, triggered a lot of this research, yeah. where they did exactly what they what you said, Ben. They said, oh, um, they, they backed down and said, of course, um, we will, you know, we'll now, we are, we reviewed our policy and we now realise that we need to, to stock both both um, gender critical and transgender rights books, and and not show fear or favour. However, there was that point about them not wanting necessarily to promote them, i.e., put them on those tables that you fall over when you walk into a library because they're on display and you walk straight into them. And we all know how nudge theory works. We talked about that in the past. We know we know how the the psychology of customers. Uh, approaching shelves and approaching um, 
uh, places like libraries, how that works. So it does matter as to whether or not they are allowed to go on the show tables. Um, and, and in this instance, it seems that they're still going to be um, kept away from them. So, yeah, there's a number of issues that are raised in this report. It's well worth reading in full. Unless there's anything you want to add on that point, uh, shall we move on, staying with the LGBTQIA plus theme, uh, to the question of the proposed conversion therapy ban, uh, which the government uh, proposes to bring forward. So it's probably worth explaining perhaps why this is a free speech issue, why this is something the FSU has taken a view on. So we have published a statement uh, on Monday morning this morning uh, about the bill and the dangers it poses to free speech. So rather than just read that to you, I'd encourage you to have a look at that yourself. And we're asking that uh, our members and members of the public write to their MP um, expressing their concerns about the legislation. The problem from a free speech point of view is that a poorly worded piece of legislation, which I'm afraid is what we'd have to anticipate in this area, would mean that all sorts of completely reasonable private conversations between, for instance, parents and children um, would risk becoming criminalised, falling foul of this law. And certainly from examples overseas, um, we've seen already where this type of legislation will go. And I think the other point that, that's worth stressing is that the kinds of extreme uh, attempts at converting somebody's sexuality that um, that this legislation is aimed at, at stamping out are likely, very likely, uh, if not certain, to fall foul of existing legislation. So it seems to me like a, a sort of virtue signalling piece of law that is tackling a problem that is not widespread and which could already be uh, reduced or prevented using existing law and powers. Um, and it also carries with it all of these threats to freedom of expression if it's badly worded. Um, so do go and have a look at that as well. And it's a very interesting example, Liz, of how language is being uh, used and weaponized. Uh, by one side against the other side. So in, in this instance, when we talk about uh, transgender conversion therapy, what, what's being talked about is is just sitting sitting down with someone who says that they feel they may be in the wrong body. And they're, they're, a lot of these youngsters are probably uh, just same-sex attracted. Um, but in, in you're not allowed to sit down with them and, and, and explore that. Um, you must uh, acknowledge or affirm, in essence, that they're yes, they are they they are transgender or non-binary or whatever it may be. And the issue with that is it's actually quite homophobic because actually then that's saying it's not it's no longer uh, accepted in the way it might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. It might not to say you're oh, someone same-sex attracted and they'll just they'll just grow up to be same-sex attracted. Let them grow up, let them be, and let them work out. That's its own battle. Um, but let them work that one out. And so there is, and I think the LGB Alliance is really crystal clear on this. There is in, inherent in a lot of this um, debate is quite a lot of new homophobia. It, it, it's this, 
old old um, concepts that come back in new ways. Uh, I think the same, you know, with anti-Semitism. I was looking looking at something about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the oldest thing in the world, but it it, re- it morphs like a virus, like a like a um, apparent changes, and it comes back in in new ways. I think homophobia now is coming back in new ways, and I think this is another really good example, um, Ben, where. Um, uh, the government has lost confidence because it doesn't see these things clearly. It doesn't doesn't quite realise just how much language is being used and abused in these new ways, and is slow to the uptake on it. Um, so yeah, um, I, sorry, it's a long way of saying I I completely concur with what you just <laughs> said, Ben. And we we if the, as many listeners and members and supporters we can get right into their MPs. Um, the more we can make it clear to the government that there is, uh, 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 you know, that we need we need to put us we need to allow we must not make people uh, criminals simply for simply gently questioning people who are going through a rough time, children who may be going through a rough time for all sorts of reasons, and that is what we're in danger of going towards. Well, if you listen to that and you're concerned, as I said, please go onto our website and there is a campaigning tool there. You can use a pro forma email to write to your MP. So it's a very quick process and you can edit it or change it entirely if you wish to as well, uh, if you want to put it in in your own form of words. Um, I think that's probably all from us now, Tom. So I suppose I just say thank you again for everybody who's new to the FSU who signed up at Battle of Ideas over the weekend and to new listeners. It was great to speak to some of our listeners uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and uh, until next time I think yes speak to you next time bye bye